Father, help us uh, understand David as a man, as a father, as a leader, and most of all, Father, as your servant, a man who was called to follow you from a very young age and has done amazing things. And Father, his life uh, has the same course that many of us have known in our own walk with you, Father, that is of triumphs and of struggles, of days in which we are well within your will and many days in which, Father, we are far from it. And as such, Father, he is such a great example to us of how you work patiently with your, with your children. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us see how you've worked with him so that we might understand better how you work with us and learn from his good things and also from his poor results whenever those came as well. And we ask, Father, you'd show us the difference, not only in his life, but in ours. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get back into where we are in the story of David. We are in chapter 16. David is, we're in the middle of the conflict between David and Absalom, a longer story within an even longer section on David's failings. And in the story of David and Absalom, we've seen Absalom now make his move to try to take the throne from David. And David now has fled the city of Jerusalem in anticipation of his son's arrival, uh, his son's invasion, if you will. David was followed by a very small but loyal band of men, mostly Gentile men, but he has no real plan for how to hold on to power. It's a plan day to day at this point. And in the wake of David's departure, Absalom is going to enter the city of Jerusalem, declaring himself now to be king. It's quite an audacious plan, really on Absalom's part, trying to take the throne of his father while his father's still alive. It's an act of rebellion, and it's a a level of presumption that you might compare to the prodigal son demanding his inheritance before his father died. It's the same kind of thinking. Absalom's antics are directly related to David's handling of his family life. We've looked at this now for a number of weeks. That is, that's why it's here in the book. That's why it's in this section. David's unwillingness to hold his sons accountable, even beyond that, his willingness to extend his family through multiple wives, all of this has created the the atmosphere, the circumstances for this problem. And it's resulted in Absalom being a spoiled, ignored, marginalized son who is now resentful of his father and determined to replace him. And David knew that Solomon was God's choice and that Absalom's rebellion is not going to stand, not by God's will. And so he's biding time. He escapes the city. He's looking for the Lord to solve his own problems, as we'll see in a future chapter. He is completely unwilling to raise his hand against Absalom. The last thing David wants is to fight his son or to put his son in harm's way. And David's confidence that the Lord will solve this problem for him is reflected at times in his response to this trial. So as I think I've said here on a couple of occasions, David's faults lead him into these moments, but David's strengths lead him out. And it's his willingness to follow the Lord, wait on the Lord, listen to the Lord, depend on the Lord that lets David shine, even though he was in a situation of his own making. And last week we heard David telling the priests, if you remember, as he exited the city, He told them, keep the ark in the city. Don't let it follow me. And that was not the pattern of of kings generally. When a king was fleeing an invader, he took everything with him that was of any value, certainly anything that symbolized his power. 
his rule. But David recognized that the ark was not a symbol of his power or of his reign. It represented God's reign, God's power over Israel. So he said, if God wants me to come back, I'll come back. If God doesn't want me to come back, I won't. The ark will be here waiting one way or the other. And that was maybe the first indication of David's willingness to rely on the Lord in the middle of this difficult set of circumstances. And it's his recognition of God's sovereignty and of God's purpose in this that allows David to make the most of these circumstances. We're going to see that again tonight. So as David moves with God, knowing God is in control, two things begin to happen in this story. First, David begins to learn from these experiences. We'll see how that plays out as we go through future chapters. And he begins to receive the Lord's discipline as a result. He'll still make some mistakes. And in fact, David is going to make some of those mistakes even in the course of his flight in the story we're in now. But he's also going to learn to deal better with his children. And in later years, he will rectify many of these early mistakes. The second thing that happens because he's moving in God's will is he allows, or you could say it this way, uh, God is able to use David to create a powerful picture of Jesus. And I said last week, if you remember, that his flight can be compared to Christ's first coming in many of the details. And that connection is intended, I think, by how God has orchestrated the story. David's willingness to walk in the will of the Lord as he goes through this exercise, this crisis, is how God puts it to good use. Now, I introduced this picture briefly last week. I want to revisit it tonight because we're going to come back into it at a point later. But I'll remind you of what we did last week in this picture I'm describing of how David represents Christ at his first coming. We said you can look at David's flight and compare it to Christ's first coming. And a number of things have already come out in chapter 15 from last week. You remember I said last week David entered Jerusalem to a joyous response when he first opened the city and called it the city of David. And we remember Jesus entered under similar circumstances on Palm Sunday. When David left because of Absalom, he was rejected by his own people because they were clearly not on his side. They thought Absalom was a, a great guy to be the new king. And later, when Jesus had spent a few days in the city, he was rejected as well. When David departed, he left with uh, Gentile followers, and of course Jesus has mostly Gentile followers as a result of his departure. And David leaves by way of the Mount of Olives, Jesus ascended off of the Mount of Olives, and then David orders the ark remain, and Christ commanded that the Spirit of God would come to his believers as well. That is, the presence of God would remain even if Christ himself has departed. All right, that's where we started in the picture. And that picture continues to develop today and in future weeks. Tonight, we're also going to look at the end of tonight at the purpose of this picture and why the Lord wanted us to see that connection, or at least I'll allude to it. It'll really develop more in next week. But first, let's get back to the story of David's departure. That's at chapter 16 now, verse 1. Now, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them were 200 loaves of bread and 100 clusters of raisins and 100 summer fruit and a jug of wine. The king said to Ziba, why do you have these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for whoever's faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, and where's your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, 
Well, behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O my Lord, the king. So David has gone beyond the Mount of Olives, we're told, just over the crest, and he's met by a servant of Mephibosheth. Uh, You remember Ziba? So Ziba had been David's servant, and when Mephibosheth came to David and David showed him uh, grace because of the covenant he had with Jonathan, he gave Mephibosheth all of Saul's family property, which was a considerable amount of land and, and servants and so on, but uh, he wasn't going to be able to manage that himself, being crippled. So David reassigned one of his own servants, Ziba, to go care for Mephibosheth's property. He sent Ziba and Ziba's whole family down there. Now, we can assume that Ziba was not happy about the reassignment. And I say that partly because of what we see happen in this story, but even just simply looking at it, he was trading places between working in a palace to working in the field, to being near the king to working for the grandson of the king's enemy, basically, from history. So no, no doubt Ziba resented that change, even if he had to do it, and he resented Mephibosheth's good fortune. And now Ziba sees an opportunity to play David's circumstances to his own advantage and to Mephibosheth's disadvantage. In verse one, we're told that Ziba rides out on donkeys, or rides out with donkeys and supplies to meet David, and it's obvious he's heard the news David is leaving the city. I mean, he wouldn't have known to come here otherwise. And so David asks him why you've come, why you've made this effort with these supplies. And he says, I'm here to support you. And when you think about the high value of what he brought, it's a significant supply. David begins to wonder, and his first thought is, where's Mephibosheth? This is his stuff, not yours. Why didn't he bring it out? And That would have been expected more so because under the circumstances, you've got the nation about to enter civil war and allegiances, alliances matter at this point. Everybody's gonna have to pick a side. And think about like back to the US Civil War, you know, there there weren't anybody who was neutral. You were either blue or gray. So when you had this kind of a situation, the king is immediately trying to figure out what side are you on? And the fact that Mephibosheth's not there raises concerns for David and he asks, and Given how much power Mephibosheth had in terms of land, given what David did for him, he'd like to see that repaid. But Ziba says, no, he's not here, he's gone to Jerusalem. Well, going to Jerusalem can only mean one thing. He's on the side of Absalom, or so it would seem. And in fact, uh, Ziba says he was quoted as saying, finally, I'll get the kingdom back that was once my father's. In reality, this is a clever, calculated ploy on Ziba's part to malign Mephibosheth so as to obtain Mephibosheth's property. And it works to an extent. He knows that by showing his loyalty to David and reporting that Mephibosheth had betrayed him, David is gonna wanna reward Ziba and give Ziba all of Mephibosheth's property so that it stays in the hands of a loyalist. And it happens. Now, Ziba's treachery is gonna be exposed later. But even then, and this is back to David's principal character flaw or leadership weakness, even when it's apparent later that Ziba was lying and that it was all treachery, David does not deal with it. He does not punish Ziba. In fact, he allows him to keep part of the reward. That moment gives you another indication, another opportunity to highlight that David as a leader or as a king was just too trusting of bad men and often unwilling to hold them accountable. 
And that's not just true for his own kids. I mean, it was true for even someone like this man. And many of those bad decisions come to haunt David later. Ultimately, his son Solomon has to deal with many of the consequences of David's poor decisions earlier. You know, discernment, the word discernment, means the ability to separate truth from falsehood or to recognize the difference between wisdom and foolishness. It's a natural ability to some extent, for some people more than others, but it can be given by God as well as a uh, supernatural spiritual gift, discernment, the gift of discernment. And I think it's obvious that it's a particularly important gift if you're a leader. It's great skill if you're a leader. David is a leader, but he lacked discernment at times, especially in the counsel he received from others. That is, he trusted the wrong people, or he didn't question what should have been questionable. Like in this case, he should have been questionable that Ziba would come out alone and say that his his, uh, master had turned traitor, but somehow he had still been able to leave with all of those supplies and go to David with them. Never mind the fact that Mephibosheth owed David so much, how could he have ever turned his back on him? That was at least deserving of a couple of more questions. But David has no, no such discernment at this moment. He's forgiving, and I would argue, though, that that's a good trade. He was forgiving at, a, uh, at times to a fault, especially toward his family or close aides like this man. Look, mercy is a positive character trait, but there comes a point where mercy, taken too far, can work against the cause of godliness. And this is another example of that. David trusting too easily, not discerning that this man had good cause to lie, and you should probably take his statements with a grain of salt. And that pattern of lacking discernment, at least at times, it sets up his son Solomon to have to correct for it. And I don't think it's a coincidence that David's story has this this deficit of discernment as a theme, and then his son is gifted with the greatest discernment that anyone has ever had in history, according to Scripture. That it's almost as if God has balanced the scale by putting a man after David who could completely compensate. But at the same time, and this is getting a little off the point of the book, but if you take a higher study of David versus Solomon, 1st, 2nd Samuel, Kings versus uh, Ecclesiastes, and, and so on, it becomes apparent that both have their own lesson. That is, You can have a heart of great mercy like God does, and it can still be to your own undoing if it's not coupled with proper justice. And you can also be a man of great wisdom and discernment, but that doesn't help you understand things that only God reveals. That is, no person by their own abilities stands independent of God and his grace. And there is no formula that humanity can come upon, wisdom, riches, power, anything, that can put us on a level in which what we have is self-sustaining and we don't need God. And it's as if God delights to reveal that one character after another, giving them each different kinds of strengths so that in each in their own way can show that those strengths don't save them. And that's something of what you see here. Anyway, David's flight from the city continues from here after he has met with Ziba and taken the supplies. Uh, Now having been met by a dishonest man who was trying to ingratiate himself, now he's met by a hateful man who wants to curse him. That's in verse five. When King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. 
Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. So these things are happening in fairly quick proximity. In fact, I'll give you a a little map to kind of show where we are. The words are a little small if you can't see them, but uh, we are, Jerusalem is this little black one right here, and then Barim is right north of it. He's gone over the Mount of Olives, northeast basically, and he's come to this about a mile or two away. He comes to this little town called Barim, and a man named Shimei, another relative of Saul. Remember, the tribe of, uh, Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin. And if you remember, we've said in the past, the division line between Judah, David's tribe, and Benjamin, Saul's tribe, ran uh, east-west right through the middle of the city of Jerusalem, right through the Temple Mount. So north of this is Saul's territory, south of this is David's territory, David's moving northeast. So he has walked into Saul's, his family territory, that is Benjamin. That's why he runs into Ziba. Now it's why he runs into Shimei. And uh, the tribe of Benjamin is not necessarily friendly territory for David. Even after all these years, there's still resentment about the fact that David supplanted Saul's dynasty. So as he leaves Jerusalem and comes upon this man Shimei, Shimei decides he's going to mock and insult and even throw rocks at David for what he says is his bloodshed. And he's speaking here as if David is personally responsible for Saul's death, Jonathan's death, maybe Abner's death, who knows who others in that world this man is laying at the feet of David. Uh, But he's putting it all in David's lap and saying, this is why you're in trouble now. You're getting paid back by God for how you treated the Benjamites, how you treated Saul. And standing next to Shimei on both sides are all the powerful men of the Benjamite tribe. So he's not standing there alone. He's, it, it's effectively like a schoolyard uh, tussle in which two guys are threatening each other and waiting for the first one to start the battle, and they got their allies next to them as they go through this process. Then Shimei says what would have been obvious to everyone, which is, you're getting replaced. And now, at this point, what he's saying is not fundamentally true. David is not responsible for the death of Saul or Jonathan or any of those other people. We know that. In fact, if anything, David would have tried to stop them from being killed. Um, but nevertheless, look at how David responds. Verse 9. It starts first with one of David's counselors. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over there now and cut off his head. But the king said, What have I had to do with you, O sons of Zariah? If he curses, and the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, what have you done? Or why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Let him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him. And that's David's response. If you look at what David is saying... That is, if you understand uh, how he's responding here, you realize that this is David recognizing the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 12. He says, Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on their way, and Shimei went along the hillside parallel with him, and as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. So look at the contrast. Abishai, remember who Abishai is? He's one of the brothers of Joab who's the commander of David's army. So 
Joab, Abishai, his other brothers who are gone, they all have the same view of life. It, whenever something's wrong, the answer is attack. Do you remember when they were visiting with Abner on that uh, diplomatic mission and things go badly in that mission? They attack Abner. They, 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 that's their, their first go-to card. And that's why they're over the army, I guess. But David saw the situation differently. He saw what he was facing as the Lord bringing these circumstances on him. And in acknowledging that, David says, I'm not going to fight against the Lord. He's put this up. He's put Shimei up to this. And our response to every set of circumstances we will ever face largely depends, our response will depend largely on whether we understand and acknowledge God's sovereignty in our circumstances or not. If you forget that God sets your circumstances, all of them, then you will start to see the things that happen to you as you know, happenstance or bad luck or you know, karma or some other nonsense notion. And when you think that, you will try to fix them yourself. You got yourself into it, you can get yourself out of it. I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman. I can take care of my own life. I don't need any help. Which often means you end up working against God because he's the one who put those circumstances in place for good reason. And rather than work out what those reasons are, we just kick against the goads. But if you correctly acknowledge that God is working through those difficulties to get your attention, to grow you, to ultimately change you, well, then you're in a position to learn. And that's David's response. He rebukes Abishai, he refuses his counsel, and he asks the question, you know, if the Lord has put Shimei up to this, that means the Lord is cursing me, effectively. And how am I to question the Lord's choice in doing so? That's his answer. So David reasons with his men that if, he, if he's not willing to fight his own son for the throne, why would I fight this nobody? You know, it's, it's just a prideful response at that point. So let him, let him curse. If the Lord's told him to curse me, let him do it. And in the Lord's providence, it'll serve some good purpose. And he says, maybe the Lord will reverse my fortunes for having respected him when he had to bring me this curse, of this, this discipline. Now, remember I said a moment ago, nothing Shimei is saying is honest or true. He's not correct. David's not to blame for the, blood, the bloodshed of Saul's dynasty. So why is David willing to take the cursing? Because David knew it was a proper judgment, and here's why. Because David knew he was guilty of Uriah's death. That is, David is keeping God at the center of his circumstances, and as a result, he's asking the right questions. He's saying, first, how can I challenge God's judgment? And then secondly, he's saying, if I accept God's discipline well here, maybe he'll reward me by putting me back in a position that I wish I was in. And that's the way you look at trials. Can you say you respond to trials that way? That's the question you ought to ask yourself as you move past this moment. Are you, when you are in a trial situation, do you say, God, I know you're doing this for some good reason, so I accept it for that reason? Or do you run yourself ragged trying to fix it? Do you appreciate why it's happening, or do you give a chance for God to show you that? So though the world looked at this and said, that's not fair, David, you didn't do what he's saying, you shouldn't have to take the abuse, David's saying, yeah, but you're missing the point. If God's bringing this to me, he's trying to discipline me in some way, and it may not relate to this man's purpose. He's a tool in God's arm. God's using him, and so his reason for doing it is his own. But God's reason for doing it, I understand, because God's telling me that. That's how David was responding to that. So, you know, your, your bad day may be because a cop caught you speeding and pulled you over. 
But God's point in that may be something about submission to authority or it might be something about patience or something about not uh, you know, trying to uh, push harder than you need to in a given moment. Who knows how the message is in your heart? One is simply a mechanism for the other. It's not the sum total of the other. And so David is recognizing in this moment he did create circumstances that brought about this set of events and God is letting him know that there is a consequence for it. Now, having said all that, this guy is swearing at the high, the, the, the king. He is throwing rocks at God's anointed. He is swearing and cursing at David. Those are violations of the law. And they are not going to go unpunished forever. He will eventually bring this man to task for what he's done. And he, he, he does it justly. But here and now he's saying this is not the time to enact personal retribution because it misses the point of what God is doing in this case. That's a little footnote to take away as well. You may be persecuted, you may be put under some difficult situation, you may think it's unfair and it may very well be, but it may not be the right time for you to deal with that. It may be a time of discipline you need to endure first. Interestingly, these these opening stories, Ziba and Shimei, they both reveal David's greatest weakness and his greatest strength in back-to-back moments. In the sense, on the one hand, he's too easily deceived by those who are close to him and ingratiate themselves. Men like Ziba pull the wool over David's eyes at times. He willfully turns a blind eye to their mistakes and so on. That created all kinds of bad patterns for David. It left bad actors too close to him. On the other hand, his dependence on God, his trust in God, allowed him to uh, recover from those very same bad circumstances in a way that supported God's purpose, and you see it here. He accepts the rebuke of God willingly. So I don't know what you'd rather be. I mean, ideally, I guess we'd all rather be the one who never sins in the first place, but given that that's not generally an option, the next best plan, I think, is to be like David. That is, accept the correction quickly and willingly and get back on track. So David may have made a few mistakes along the way, but he does really well in how he responds to that. And in fact, I think maybe more than in any other way, that's why he's called a man after God's own heart. So David hides out in Bahrim, that little town up there. His men will refresh there for a while thanks to the provisions of Ziba. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Absalom enters and David's little spy sets up shop. Verse 15. Then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem and Ahithophel with them. Now it came about that when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Then Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I remain forever. Besides, whom should I serve? Should I not serve In the presence of his son, as I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. Now you remember this guy, Hushai. He was the guy that met David again on the way out of the city last week. And he pledged his support to David and he was going to follow David. And David said, no, I'll just have to feed you. You stay here, go back into Jerusalem, and you be my spy in Absalom's court. He said, when you need to tell me something, the priests are on my side, go tell them. They'll send their sons, their sons will come and communicate. That's how we'll work our plan together. Now, Hushai is a man of integrity, and as such, he supports David because David is God's anointed. But for the same reason, 
he's in a tough situation when he goes back to Absalom because he wants to assist David, but he's not gonna lie and he doesn't wanna deceive. So how's he gonna fulfill his role without compromising his integrity? I think being a spy is almost by definition a compromise of integrity, but he's gonna do it. His solution is to speak truth at all times, but in such a way that Absalom's prideful, arrogant heart is going to hear the words in his preferred way, but yet it won't be what Hushai actually means. For example, verse 16. Hushai comes to meet Absalom in the king's court for the first time. He says, long live the king. Now, in Absalom's heart, in Hushai's heart, he's thinking of David as he says those words, right? But of course, Absalom hears them as if he's talking about Absalom. That's the pattern you're gonna see all the way through the story of Hushai. In verse 17, Absalom begins to interrogate him because he knows this is a guy that used to be a friend of David. He's David's counselor. He's a little worried about where his allegiance lies. So he asks Hushai, are you not loyal to David, your friend? Why are you not with your friend? Hushai responds adamantly, oh, I'm going to only follow the king that the Lord and the people of Israel have chosen. Here again, he's speaking of David, though it sounds to Absalom as if he's speaking about him. Verse 18, Hushai shows himself to be the master of double entendre. He says, should I not serve in the presence of the king's son? Just as I served in David's presence, now I'll sure serve in the presence of the king's son, right? Here's the way Absalom heard that. Just as I served David before, now I'm ready to serve you in his place. But what Hushai meant was, just as I served David when David was present, now I serve David when David is absent by serving you. You see the difference, right? You clearly see how what he's doing now answers the prayer that David spoke back in 2 Samuel 15, verse 31, when David had first learned that one of his most trusted counselors, Ahithophel, which was the, the grandfather of Bathsheba, when he heard that that man had run to Absalom's side in Hebron, David was crushed because that was a big loss. And he immediately cried out in prayer to the Lord saying, let this man's counsel be turned to be foolish to Absalom's detriment. And immediately after that, remember, Hushai appears, God's answer to the prayer. And now Hushai's working that very plan. And with an ally on the inside, he's gonna thwart the military advantage. And he begins to make that impact almost immediately. Look at verse 20. Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your advice, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, And then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. So... When Absalom turns to him and says, what do you think we ought to do next? Bathsheba's grandfather advises him, go sleep with all of David's concubines. Now remember, he he left these 10 concubines in the house when he fled so that they would just keep the place. And a concubine, the word means a slave wife. So it's a woman taken as a wife, but she's not a free woman. She is a slave, like any other slave in the home. She worked in the home or she worked in the field, but she was also married to her owner, which elevated her among the slaves, but her status in the household was always below that 
of a free woman. She was never treated as anything more than a slave. She just happened to have this additional side to her existence where she could have a night with the master. And as such, concubines were property, which meant that they were transferred as part of the estate when the master died to the whoever inherited the state inherited these concubines. Now, whether that new person took them as wives or not would have been a matter of their own decision, but many did. And now we have David with at least 10 that we know of, concubines, in addition to the multiple free wives. Of course, we've discussed already that all of this is contrary to God's plan. And again, it brings problems for David. Here's a new one. The new one is it gives Absalom an advantage to take, uh, well, to take advantage of David and of his opportunity to seize power. What Ahithophel recognizes is that these 10 concubines are a tremendous symbolic advantage for Absalom. In that day and time, uh, when a king died and the new king inherited the concubines of the prior king, that new king often consummated the relationship with all of those wives because symbolically it was a bold statement. It said that the new king now was taking the position of the old king, filling his shoes, so to speak. So in this case, to sleep with David's concubines in this way, it's a bold statement to say, I'm now the king, I'm taking over. Plus, as Ahithophel said, it's gonna make him odious to David. It's going to really make reconciliation impossible. And as such, it forces everyone to pick a side at this point. Uh, To make sure that this message is communicated properly (laughs) and thoroughly, they pitch a tent on the roof of David's house. They parade the 10 concubines in, one at a time, into the tent in full view of, of everyone who would have been able to see from the city or wherever. Now, I'm, a, I'm supposing this was done over a series of evenings, so the spectacle would have been built over days and everyone would have known what's going on, and it's kind of ironic it's happening on the roof, remember? That's kind of where all this started. David looking down at Bathsheba. And it would almost appear as though the Lord's trying to connect the events in that way. So you have David's infidelity with Uriah's wife, which began a a spiraling series of events that one way or another you can trace them really to what David's facing now with his own son committing adultery against him with his concubine wives. We we can't say, you know, as a rule, you cannot say God always brings your your sin back upon your head. That is not a biblical concept. It's the antithesis of grace, actually. But you can say he uses everything we give him to discipline us one way or another. And the process of discipline can come out in in very overt ways or it can just be subtle, but it's always directed at the same purpose, teaching and growing and leading us away from that sin in the future. And the effect of Absalom's behavior solidifies his claim to the throne, but it puts an end to virtually any compromise that could have been made at this point. And like Ahithophel said, it strengthens those who are with you. What he means is, that if anyone was wavering at this point about whether this is really gonna last, is this a temporary thing, is the rebellion for sure, Uh, are they gonna make, you know, quick kiss and make up and it'll all be fine, this puts an end to that. Everyone's gonna have to pick a side and, and go wherever it takes them. And those who lose this battle, whichever side, would expect to die as a result. The chapter ends in verse 23 with a comment about Ahithophel's authority. The writer says this man's counsel is as if it's the word of God for Absalom and even for David to to an extent when he was in David's court. Here's the point. The point is this man had good sound advice most of the time and it was never challenged. And as a result, it's gonna be very hard for Hushai to deal with it. That's what this is now setting up. How is Hushai 
going to stop this man from helping David, given that David prayed that it would turn his wisdom to foolishness. Think about this. This is an amazing prayer response for David. David just basically asked for the impossible. A man whose wisdom and consistency of counsel was so highly regarded, it was like the word of God. And David prayed, make his wisdom foolish. And David gets his answer just through this man, Hushai. Verse one of chapter 17. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, please let me choose 12,000 men that I might arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he's weary and exhausted and terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee and then I will strike down the king alone and I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people will be at peace. So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So his counsel to Absalom is, here's your battle plan, strike while the iron's hot. Give me 12,000 men, I'll get there, it's only two miles away, I'll be there in half an hour. Strike him while he's tired, he's unprepared, he doesn't have many men on his side yet, we can win this quickly, and I'll kill him myself, and then we'll bring everybody else back, and it will demoralize the nation of, of those who support David, giving them few other options except to support you. He says it essentially this way, David is the key. One man dies and you save the nation. For yourself, that is. Now that pleases Absalom, sounds sensible. He likes a a quick end to this story. He's ready to accept what Ahithophel says, but Absalom sees an opportunity in the advice. Here's the opportunity. He can use it to test Hushai's loyalty. Verse five. Then Absalom says, now call Hushai the Archidin also, and let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai has come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus. Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai says to Absalom, well, this time, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men and they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare and will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place, and it will be when he falls on them at first attack that whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows, your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. But I counsel that all Israel will be surely gathered to you, from Dan, even to Beersheba, as the sand that is by the sea in abundance, and that you personally go into battle." So we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found. We will follow him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and of all the men who are with him, not even one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city and we'll drag it into the valley until not even a small stone is found there. So Absalom calls Hushai into the room and he says, I got a question for you. What do we do next in terms of battle? Here's what Ahithophel told me. What do you say? Here's the trap. The trap is, if Ahushai is, if, if is still on David's side, which is the suspicion, then Absalom expects that he'll try to talk him out of the attack, try to save David. And if so, it'll expose Hushai. And Hushai knows this. I mean, it's not hard to see it. So he understands the trap himself. So he's got to search for a way to respond that doesn't give himself away. But at the same time, he doesn't want David to be attacked this night. And so he's got to preserve his integrity He's got to save David, and he's got to convince Absalom he's on his side. 
So his strategy is to simultaneously undermine Absalom's confidence in the attack plan that was proposed while arguing for the attack to take place. And in verse 7, he opens provocatively. He says, Ahithophel's advice is not good, which I'm sure got everybody's attention. And he says, you'll remember, Absalom, how mighty David's army has always been, how good a military leader he has always been. And therefore, it's foolish for us to sit here assuming that he's over there waiting in Baharim, just sitting out in the open for you to come attack him. He wouldn't do that. He'd be in a cave somewhere. He's already off the grid. You're not going to find him. So he says in verse 9, because he's going to be out of sight and out of reach, if you go looking for him, his troops are going to come out when you're not ready and expose you, and you're going to get slaughtered, and then the word's going to pass that you were defeated in battle, and that's going to turn the tide against you. Now that's playing to something that Absalom knows is true, at least in the general sense, that he knows his father has had remarkable success on the battlefield his whole career, and so it's not necessarily an unbelievable scenario. And so from there, Hushai counsels that what Absalom ought to do is to get everyone in the nation who sides with him, everyone from Dan to Beersheba, that's a phrase that means like from shining sea to sea here, it's the same idea. Dan was the northernmost place in Israel, Beersheba was the southern border of Israel, so from Dan to Beersheba meant everybody. And he says, get everybody on your side, none that are left, then go in mass to a place where you'll find him, that is to say wherever the time presents, whenever the place can be found, and then engage in a mass battle in which you simply overwhelm him with your numbers, and if he goes into a city to hide, we'll drag the city into the valley, so to speak. He's simply talking in bravado, making up a story. None of this is, it's not a lie, because it's complete make-believe. He's just saying what the future could be. But his point is to appeal to Absalom's pride by saying, you'll lead this battle. Don't let Ahithophel get all the glory. You go for it, and go for it when you have the numbers. He's trying to buy time for David because if Absalom agrees to the plan, he looks like he's on Absalom's side, certainly, but that delay will give David the advantage he needs because uh, Hushai assumes correctly that David is in no condition right now to fight a battle, which is why Ahithophel's advice was so wise. And predictably, Absalom likes the advice. It's predictable because it plays to his ego. And so he gives orders, let's follow Hushai's advice. Let me lead the battle when we have plenty of men. And in verse 14, we're told this was in keeping with David's prayer request when he asked the Lord to thwart Ahithophel's counsel. So Ahithophel's still given a good counsel, but God has put someone in the middle of the scene who can change the way it's heard by Absalom. Now this enters into the next part of the story, which is a bunch of cloak and dagger uh, skullduggery of sorts with spies and movement of people at night and th- this is all around trying to get word to David now about what's coming. Verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, this is what Ahithophel counseled Absalom and the elders of Israel and this is what I have counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David saying do not spend the night at the fords of the wilderness but by all means cross over or else the king and all the people who are with him will be destroyed. Now, Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at Enrogel. This is up on the map now, if you're wondering. Here's Enrogel, just south of the city. And a maidservant would go and tell them, and they would go and tell King David, for they, that is the Jonathan and Ahimaaz, for they could not be seen entering the city. 
But a lad did see them and told Absalom. So the two of them quickly departed and came to the house of a man in Bahrim who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it. And the woman took a covering and spread it over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it so that nothing was known. Then Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house and said, where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, they've crossed the brook of the water. And when they searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. So remember, David told Hushai to have allies with the priests and their sons. And so now he's using that. Uh, Hushai wants to tell David what to expect, tells the priests there's an immediate attack potential or at least one soon to come, get out of town. That goes from the priests to the priests' sons, who are the ones who are actually going to go to David because the priests can't leave the city. They leave the city, it's too obvious. Where'd the, why'd the high priest go? It's too much of a sign that something's up. But the sons of the priests aren't necessarily being watched as closely. But just to be sure, they stay outside the city of Jerusalem. And Rogel is literally right outside the wall of the city on the southern end, right where the Hinnom and Kidron Valleys meet. Right now there's a little Arab town called Silwan there. The uh, hotel we stay in when we go to Israel looks right down on it. So that's where this place would have been, right outside the city. And they're hiding there waiting, and a maidservant is sent with the real message out of the city. She goes down to tell the, the two sons of the priest who would then go and tell David. But somehow, in the middle of all this, a young boy sees them meeting, I guess. And who knows how, somehow, somehow he can figure out that this is something related to David and Absalom and this is something going on that Absalom should know about. We don't really understand how that came to pass, but that little lad was enough to give away the whole of it. So at the point where they realize that their cover is blown, they've gotten the story from the maidservant, so they know what they need to say. They get out of town as quickly as they can. They head to Bahrim to tell David. But they're smarter than that. They know that if they go to David, they might lead Absalom there. So they stop at a house of someone who is sympathetic to David, and the woman in that house hides them in her well. They literally go down into the well, and she covers it with sheaths so it doesn't look like the well's even there, and it, it covers them over for the men who, find, who, who come from Absalom later looking for these two spies. The whole story reads a little bit like the story of Jericho and Rahab. You know the story of, in, in uh, Joshua, where you have... Uh, the initial entry of Israel into the promised land looking at Jericho is their first stopping point. They send the spies in and the spies have to be protected from the people of Jericho by a woman who hides them and then lies about where they are. Very similar set of circumstances here. Uh, In both cases, you have the Lord working through these undercover methods to preserve his people. When you see this kind of thing happening in scripture, like with Rahab or here, you're seeing a demonstration of a very interesting principle in scripture related to spiritual warfare. And that principle Jesus sums up very uh, succinctly, be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. Which is to say this, the enemy is described in scripture as crafty like a serpent, always at work to undermine the church, always seeking to stop God's work in and through us. And the Lord says that as you take your stand against the enemy, you need to understand what warfare looks like. And by that, it's not pretty. It involves working undercover. It involves appreciating the need for creativity, resourcefulness, secrecy, wisdom about this thing. To walk through this life oblivious to the spiritual warfare that's always underway is a naive approach to Christian living. 
You are a target and likely to fall because the enemy is prowling, as the scripture says, ready to take you down on a temptation of whatever kind. But even apart from you personally, he's working to undermine ministries around you at all times. He spies on you. And I, don't let this sound conspiratorial or, or melodramatic, but there are people who are not Christian, who are not on our side in that sense, spiritually, who are used by the enemy, who can see through their eyes, hear through their ears, and work with them to know what's going on in places that he wants to know about. And they work for him unknowingly, and he, those spies, if you want to call it that, demonic agents, they report back to Satan. There's a hierarchy there, Scripture says. And the, the fact that there are those in the world who are not believing and therefore available to the enemy in that way means that the, the church needs to work with some wisdom, wise as a serpent. Wise as a serpent is intentional. Why is the serpent wise? It's not. It's a reference to Satan. Be equal in wisdom to him in the sense of, of thinking and creative, crafty ways for how we get done what we want to do, right? How to advance the kingdom. How to not underestimate the enemy's power or reach or resources. I've, I've heard one pastor tell me this back when I was starting this church, that every new church forms with the enemy seeding some of his people in the body. That is, spies, agents, as I'm calling them, unbelievers who may themselves not even realize they're not believing, but have come into the body thinking they're part of something they're not actually a part of, and they've been sent in by the enemy so that when the time comes, they can be disruptive or they can be hurtful or they can do something to undermine the church. They're, they're ticking time bombs that the enemy puts in the body purposely, and I'm not trying to make you all afraid of each other. Everyone's starting to look around the room. No, it's, it's, it's the reality of living in a fallen world. Uh, you know, God, he's, he said, I'm not here to, Christ said to the Father, do not take them out of the world, that you cannot swim in the unchlorinated end of a pool, right? The world is full of sin and we're immersed in it. And with the people of it around us, we're here to help that problem. But in knowing it's around us, we have to remember what Paul said. We don't war against flesh and blood. We war against spiritual powers that are in the mix with us. And when the agents of the enemy, unbeknowing, unbeknownst to, to them, they are agents of the enemy, when they come into the practice of what the church is doing, wherever that is, we need to be cautious. We need to be thoughtful. We need to be discerning, not, not rejecting people, not uh, being biased against people in any sense, just wise about what we know the enemy can do. And that saying has two parts, though. That is, we must be wise in how we pursue ministry because we expect the enemy is trying to disrupt it and we don't want to make it any easier than we have to. But at the same time, Jesus said we have to be innocent as doves because if we choose methods that are themselves sinful, we are working against ourselves and giving the tools that the enemy needs to tear us down. We're playing into his hand. So we do what Hushai does here, that is resourceful in the battle without sinning. That's the goal. And if you lower your standards, if you use the enemy's own tactics, then he can simply take your sin, expose it, and use it against the church in a, mo in a moment. You just handed him the best weapon he could ever have. So we need to remain above reproach, willing to do whatever is necessary short of sin, 
to outmaneuver the enemy. And there's one caveat to this. In, in the case of Rahab, everyone is always so bothered by the fact that she told a lie. You see a woman here doing the same thing to hide these men. There is a principle in scripture that applies to that situation. When two things are in opposition such that you cannot choose but one and you must choose one, you choose the one that is of greatest good to the character and nature and purpose of God. If the choice is between turning in God's own anointed spies which are there to serve the will and purpose of God according to his covenant, or lie, lying is the option you take. If there's no third choice, and there are times in life when there are two choices in front of somebody and both of them in their own way violate some tenet of scripture, but because of circumstances we can't avoid it. We simply are in no choice but to choose one. There is no third option. And when there is no third option, you choose the one that is of least sin, that is of the one that is less what God would want under those circumstances. And that is a principle of scripture. Jesus speaks of that very issue when he talks about issues of the Sabbath at times. Sabbath was not made, uh, man were not made for the Sabbath, Sabbath was made for man. There are gonna be times when what was necessary for the good on a given day might violate the otherwise ordinary rules of the Sabbath. But when that was necessary, you could do it. And the law recognized that. This is a case of that. So these young men acting as spies in a real life war, working behind enemy lines in a battle with Satan, and it goes from there. Verse 21. It came about after that that they departed, and they came up out of the well and went and told King David. And they said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus Ahithophel has counseled against you. Then David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed the Jordan. And by dawn, not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. So mission accomplished. They tell David, David moves, and he crosses the Jordan. Here's where he goes. Later, we're gonna hear that he lands in a place called Mahanaim, and that's up there in the top right. I've already got it marked. And this is the path he would have taken. We know that because this is the only path down from Jerusalem to uh, the Dead Sea Valley. In fact, There's a major highway in Jerusalem now that you drive to get down that way when you go to the Dead Sea. And it's a valley uh, descent. You end up, when you get down here, you end up um, roughly about 1,500 feet below sea level. Very hot, hazy. And then he would have walked across the river for protection. Walked is not the right term, but he would have crossed the river. And then he would have walked up the Dead Sea Valley up to a place called Manaim. Next verse, verse 23. When... Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed. He saddled his donkey, arose, and went to his home, to his city, set his house in order, and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. So Ahithophel, the guy, Bathsheba's grandfather, the guy who became a traitor, left David for Absalom, he hears that, uh, when he hears that David has escaped to Mahanaim, uh, he realizes the folly of what's happened. I mean, his advice was correct. He knew that David's best time to be defeated was when he was on his heels and trying to escape and without much support. He knew that if Absalom tried to attack David, when David had his strength back on equal terms, Absalom's gonna lose. I mean, Absalom is, is not ex- accomplished in warfare. He does not have skill as a commander. There isn't, Joab is a better commander than anyone that would be fighting on uh, Absalom's side. And so Ahithophel understood it was a folly 
for Absalom to try to go at David in that traditional way. It spelled doom for him. And what would have happened when Absalom tried and lost? Well, then anyone who was aligned with Absalom would have lost his life as well. So Ahithophel knows he's a dead man one way or the other at this point because he's so convinced that they've lost their chance to defeat David. And so he decides to take matters into his own hands, preferring to take his own life. He had betrayed God's anointed, and yet in the end, he's the one who has no friends and dies alone. Verse 24, then David came to Maniam and Absalom crossed the Jordan, uh, he and all the men of Israel with him. So the story for tonight ends there. We're gonna end with David up here and Absalom crossing to chase after him, obviously leading to a confrontation soon to come. We end there because it's time to revisit our picture of Christ. We began looking this earlier today at how David's departure parallels Christ's departure after his death and resurrection. Now, after these two chapters, we have some more parallels to draw out. You may have seen some already. But as we look at them, I want to remind you of something. The picture here is not being built in a perfectly chronological order, nor does it need to be. That's not the intent. That is, the story that we're following here is not meant to be a chronological recreation of the story of Jesus. It's not that way. All right? The parallels, in some cases, relate to earlier events. They're not in the same order as they actually took place. Think of it in a more general way. That is, all of these details work together to create a mosaic of what Jesus went through in his first coming. So as to say, like a, a, a SAT test, A is to B, as is C to D. And what we're seeing right now is the A and the B. David's flight from Absalom is to Jesus's first coming. And it's in broad strokes that you find the parallels, something like the way you see Joseph's story paralleling Jesus. If you go through the story of Joseph, there's dozens and dozens of parallels between Joseph and Jesus. But those parallels do not come out in a perfectly chronological fashion for Jesus's story. And again, the same here. But nonetheless, you can see them. And we start today with the story of Ziba. So as David flees, he meets Ziba, and Ziba gives him a donkey that he can ride it off of the Mount of Olives, which, if you remember, is also how Jesus began his last week riding on a donkey coming in to the city from the Mount of Olives. Now, there's a difference there. One's riding out, one's riding in. Here again, the details are not meant to be perfectly tied to every single aspect of the story. It's meant to be uh, evocative, so riding a donkey on the Mount of Olives only happens a few times in Scripture, <laughs> and that's the point. It's obviously a connection. Also, I would add, if that was the only parallel between the two stories, we wouldn't even be talking about this picture, right? It adds up, though, with all the others. So that's the first one. Next, we have the meeting of David and Shimei. This man plays a particularly powerful role in this picture, though most of that power comes in next lesson or in lessons to come. We'll see more later, but for now, you can already see a beginning of it. Uh, He is a representative, Shimei is a representative of the people in Israel who reject Jesus and actually curse at him and so on. When When Jesus goes to the cross, you remember, he's cursed, rejected, spit upon by the people of Israel as he goes to the cross. They declare, you're not the rightful king. And similarly, remember, as David gets this treatment, what does David do? He does not turn against it. He does not reply against it. He does not challenge it. He accepts it 
and he declares it to be a judgment from God against him. Similarly, Jesus took the curse for us because the Father did it to him on our behalf and he willingly accepted the same. David's circumstances were made far worse by the betrayal of a close confidant, Ahithophel, and Jesus' close confidant, Judas, betrayed him as well. Now, after the counsel that Ahithophel gave, nothing came of it. It accomplished nothing to the ultimate goal. And as a result, he took his own life. Similarly, Jesus' betrayers took his own life as well. And you remember when Judas assisted the Pharisees in the battle plan they had against Jesus, there was a moment near that time when the high priest at the time said that it was expedient that one man should die for the sake of saving the nation. That's exactly what Ephethel told Absalom. It's better that this one man die and we'll save the nation as a result. All right, here again, you see the parallels between David's situation and the story of Jesus. They are all, though, related to the first coming of Christ. And that begs the question then, why are these parallels in the text? Well, it's certainly not so that we would have an insight concerning Jesus' first coming. And I say that because it would have been impossible to see these parallels in advance, to know in advance that they tied to Jesus' first coming. By the time you could make these parallels, the first coming has come and gone. And you can already see it for what it is. You don't even need the story in that sense. You don't need the picture. No, the picture is there because it begs the next question. If David's departure from Israel, from, uh, from Jerusalem and Israel, if that departure is a picture of Jesus' first coming, then what will David's return be? And that's exactly where we're going in the second part of the story. And since the return has not yet happened, we can very much benefit from understanding what we see in the details of David's experience for what it tells us about what will be coming for us in Christ. Not that it's the only place we know it, but of course, these pictures help reinforce that our understanding of Scripture is in the right place. We see it correctly. That's what we'll do when we come back. We have one more week before our break. I hope I can see you then. Meanwhile, let's stop, we'll pray, and questions will follow, I hope. Dear Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the the mystery of pictures in Scripture. How reassuring is it, Father, for us to see them and to recognize them so that they can show us that we understand things as we should. And I'm sure, Father, it delights you as well that we can see your wisdom reflected in it, the majesty of it, how it reaffirms for us that your word is from you and not merely from the invention of men, for no one, Father, would have had the wisdom to create what you created in it and to embed so many layers of understanding in it that we could see your fingerprints on it. Thank you, Father, for that, that assurance, and for the wisdom it contains. And Father, let us make the most of it, not just in what it does in our brains, Father, but what it does in our hearts and in our words and actions so that it can fully and truly live out through us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.